Let's open the precious Word of God to Second Peter chapter 3. Inspired by God the Holy Ghost and preserved as we had read to us men in our prayer meeting this morning according to Psalm 12 by that same God. Preserved words, purified as gold and silver are purified, so He's purified His words and brought them to us. Men can try to destroy it like Jehoiakim and Jehudai, and the Lord just replaces it and adds to it many like words. And we're very thankful. Second Peter chapter 3. The last four verses of this epistle are before us today. We have had explained to us in the first 14 verses of this chapter the great things that are coming, and they are certain to come. And the delay is to be understood that God's timing is different than ours, and His delay is to gather in all of His people. And verses 10 through 14 describe the total overthrow of the universe, it being melted, its elements being melted, dissolved together, but we get to look for a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. Wherein dwelleth righteousness, and we want to be living for Him when He comes for us. I read the last four verses. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. And amen. Let's move right into these four verses. And account. The mention of accounting here is to defy the sum that are mentioned in verse 9 that count God slack. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. What promise? Of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the overthrow of the universe, and a new heaven and a new earth, the judgment of the devil and His angels and of all wicked men. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness. Some men count God slack because of the apparent delay in the coming of Christ. And so we have some accounting here. Peter mentioned in verse 8 that God's timing is not our timing. One day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years with the Lord is like a day to us. And then in verse 9, he gave the explanation as to why there was a delay, and that is to gather in all of God's elect so that none of them would perish 
but that He would bring them to repentance. Now, in verses 10 through 14, He did not apply anything from verse 9. He did not make any further reference to it. He just went on with the timetable and the description of events that were to take place. And that's a new heaven and a new earth. And it was going to certainly come, and it was going to come as a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, as verse 10 goes on. And these five verses, 10 through 14, describe to us that fervent heat, the melting of the universe, the burning of it up, the dissolution of it, but a new heaven and new earth coming out of it in which there would be righteousness reigning and ruling over all aspects of it. Now at verse 15, as he's going to wrap things up and bring his epistle to a close, he ends his description of events to take place referring back to verse 9 because the things of verses 10 through 14 are huge. They're huge. And they included an exhortation for us to be ready for Him, and yet there appears, and there would certainly appear even more in generations to follow, that the Lord's coming was delayed. And so He runs back to verse 9 to grab it, to remind us to do some accounting, and that is to account that the long-suffering of God, putting up with the wicked and enduring them for an extended period of time, is salvation to get all of God's elect saved. And so thus the reference to it here. Peter had continued on in verses 10 through 14 with more revelation about Christ's coming. But men want to question whether Jesus is coming or not because of the delay. And so we're to do some accounting. An account, don't count like those scoffers in verse 9, that count the Lord slack concerning His promise, He's not really going to keep His word, do some accounting, and that is that the delay is for our salvation. And that makes the delay exciting because it gets every one of God's elect gathered in. As early as Genesis 49 and verse 10, we are told that Shiloh would come to the tribe of Judah, another name for the Lord Jesus Christ, and to him would be assigned the work of gathering in the people. And in Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible tells us the Lord Jesus Christ is going to gather in everyone in heaven and everyone in earth. There is going to be one family of God, and He's not going to lose a single one. That is our salvation, and we are to account for the delay in the Lord's coming this way. Okay, let's let's talk a little more about this word, account. I like it right here. An account. When the Bible tells us something, we account it to be true. Whether we can fully understand it or not. We have said, and we still believe to this day, by His grace, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now it's actually settled because God said it, whether we believe it or not. But because we believe it, it settles it as far as we're concerned. Believers account for God's Word based on faith, rejecting all other influences. Believers reject feelings, for they know that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Believers reject false science, for much of science, falsely so-called in God's opinion, according to 1 Timothy 6.20, is mere devilish faith. It takes more faith 
to believe the hallucinations of Stephen Hawking than it does to believe the Bible. The Bible describes intelligent design by an infinitely intelligent creator, and that makes very good sense in comparison to everything happening from a chaotic explosion and spontaneous creation. Spontaneous cannot be a a descriptive word for the word creation. Creation doesn't happen spontaneously. Creation requires a creator. So we reject false science to believe the Word of God. Believers reject a multitude, for they know what Jesus taught, and that is, things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination to God. So here we are today, believing rare truth held only by a very small minority of the earth's population about stupendous events that are coming, and we account it absolutely true. It is going to certainly happen, and it will happen exactly on time. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and He's going to change the universe. With a Bible, a believer can pass enemies, teachers, and the ancients According to Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100, three verses that we love. Because we meditate on God's precepts, He makes us wiser than our enemies. He makes us wiser than our teachers. He makes us wiser than the ancients. We don't care about the church fathers on two counts. The Word of God makes us wiser. And second, they weren't the church fathers anyway. They're the church's heretics. Gathered together by the Roman Catholics, and worshiped by the Protestants. Thank you, Lord. Believers know that God is right in anything He said, whether they grasp it or not. We give God the benefit of the doubt. For our ignorance is what creates the doubt to begin with. There's no reason to ever doubt God. He's put it in writing to us. We can be absolutely certain and sure of what God has said. He's put it in writing and thus... In the first chapter of this epistle, Peter said that we have also a more sure, sure word of prophecy being better than Peter hearing God's voice from heaven in the presence of Moses, Elijah, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Thank you, Lord. We give God the benefit of the doubt. Rather than changing Ahaziah's age, In the Bible, we are told that Ahaziah was made king when he was 22. And in another place, we were told he was made king when he was 42. Well, which one should we believe? Yes. We believe them both. Because there's hidden, advanced revelation in those that will believe God and believe both. All you have to do is read the surrounding context to find out that His father died at the age of 40, so he couldn't have been 42. So you already know that 42 must be a time reckoning that is different than biological age. And by a little bit of work, and if you want to read something very exciting and pleasant, go on our website and type in to the the search box, Ahaziah. And you'll find something very interesting to read on how God counted Ahaziah, a king of Judah, to actually be lined up with the kings of Israel and an imposter and his son and his son's son that they didn't belong in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So that when we read Matthew chapter 1, there are three kings missing in the genealogy of Jesus Christ And they're missing because we understand by Ahaziah being 42 at the time of 
taking over the kingdom, that he was being aligned by God with Israel and wasn't a true descendant of David. Praise the Lord. We believe all things. The Lord shows us advanced revelation. And so we're to do some accounting when we come to the Word of God. We account that God is true. And we account that the long-suffering of our Lord putting up with the wicked of this world, He wants to destroy them now. He waited only 120 years in the days of Noah. He's waited 2,000 years for this generation that crucified His Son, though He did take care of the Jews and the Romans, Because of His long-suffering, He's suffering their wickedness for our salvation. But we do some accounting when we come to the Word of God. We don't play games with Artaxerxes as being the king that gave the decree that began the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. We know that Cyrus was God's chosen man and that Cyrus issued the decree for the city and the temple to be rebuilt. That's also on our website. Scoffers mean nothing to believers. For believers know the warnings about them and their future. God's damnation is not slumbering and His judgment is not lingering for false teachers. There are scoffers on every Bible subject, but believers enjoy mocking them. And thus we do in our church. Peter gave three glorious reasons to account for things differently than the scoffers saw them about the Lord's return. Scoffers will say it's just metaphorical, like the preterists. Jesus is just going to return in some metaphorical way. There's going to be a New Testament versus the Old Testament and so forth. But we were taught in verses 5 through 7 of this chapter that the issue at hand is the physical, material, geological earth and heaven that will be destroyed and overthrown. We are told that God's timing is different in verse 8, and we're told why God is taking so long in verse 9. The Lord tells us everything we need to know. There's three reasons that should comfort us and encourage us. And so that's how we account. But now we want to account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Peter did not linger or apply verse 9. He immediately went to five more verses about the events coming at the Lord's return, and that is a new heaven and a new earth. Here, he just references back to it. Don't be alarmed. It's going to take a while. And the while that it takes is for good reason for Jesus Christ to save all of His elect. There would be an obvious apparent delay in Christ's return, and Peter explained it. But we're not going to accuse God doubt God or question God, believers count Him faithful because we're actually told why He's waiting. We're actually told He has a different timetable than ours. You know, we can hardly wait till tomorrow for something super good. We want it right now. And when you read about a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness and it's going to be our possession, it's hard to wait. But we wait so that He can save all of His elect because not a single one of them will be lost And to Him is the gathering of the people, and He will gather them into one sheepfold, according to John 10 and verse 16. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And so we see that Lord has to wait. The Lord's damnation is not slumbering, and His judgment is not lingering, but He waits because He's got to gather in all of them, including the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. 
I spent so much time on that around verse 9, it doesn't need any more time right now. Let's get in to the rest of these verses. Even as our beloved brother Paul also. Now remember, we have learned because of what the Holy Spirit gave us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 that the regions, the five regions that were listed there were places where Paul preached and Paul formed churches. Peter, as far as we know, never went across the Mediterranean Sea. Paul left Peter in Jerusalem that he would be a minister of the circumcision. And the only other place that we read about him, he visited Antioch, which was Paul's home church, where Paul rebuked him to his face. And then, at the end of 1 Peter, it says that Peter had written by Silvanus, Silas, one of Paul's understudy ministers, from Babylon. 500, 600 miles to the east. And so Peter did not cross the Mediterranean Sea as far as we know, but here he is writing two epistles to Paul's churches, and he identifies their territories. Do you remember 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers, meaning Jews, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And those five regions are in western Turkey. They're not in Greece. They're not in Achaia. They're not in Macedonia, the two large segments of Greece. They're in Turkey, called Asia. But here Asia is just one part of them, the strictly small province of Rome called Asia. Even as our beloved brother Paul also. Now what Peter is doing is he's writing to encourage these Jews that Paul's doctrine, because Paul was hard for a Jew to believe, because he, in certain respects, made light of the law by blasting Jewish legalists, made light of the temple, because Jesus was going to tear it to the ground, and exalted the temple of the New Testament church, exalted the Jerusalem that was above, to the neglect of the Jerusalem down here. Can you imagine being a Jew and having the Apostle Paul take apart everything you've ever put all of your comfort, stock, and hope in? So Peter writes, by the grace of God and the moving of the Holy Spirit, and who knows, maybe Paul's personal request, you say, really, do you think it really involved? Yes, because if you go read in the book of Acts, when Paul came to Jerusalem, they pulled Paul aside and said, Paul, do you see how many thousands of Jews there are that believe? Now they've all heard that you don't like the law of Moses anymore. Would you go into the temple and take a vow and shave your head so that when they see you next time, you're going to have a shaved head and they'll know that you're under a Jewish oath? Sure. And that's when he was caught by some Jews from Ephesus that had recognized him from that city and so run the last six chapters of the book of Acts. Yeah, they did things like that to help each other. Do you remember when they met in Galatians chapter 2 and they gave each other the right hand of fellowship looking each other in the eye and saying, you'll go to the circumcision, and Paul would go to the uncircumcision. They had those agreements among themselves, because brethren, our doctrine is not one man's doctrine. Our doctrine is one God's doctrine. And God the Holy Spirit. For the word came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Singular author, 40 writers, yes. And so we have Peter here, 
referring to Paul, even as in the very same way that I've taught you and the very same events that I've laid out here, the Apostle Paul has taught the same things, even as our beloved brother Paul also. Peter appealed to Paul in his epistles. He appealed to the fact in the last part of 1 Peter 5 by saying that this gospel that you stand in is the truth of God. 5.12 it is in 1 Peter. And here he's bringing up Paul's name to confirm that what they were believing is what Peter believed and what was the apostolic faith. The intent here is to corroborate Paul's doctrine of Christ's second coming. The fantastic revelation of Christ's return and its events that we just read about. Where else can we read something so plain as verses 10 through 14 about melting, fervent heat, dissolution, being burned up, overthrown, new heavens, new earth? I mean, this is fantastic information. It's wild. It's hard for the mind to grab a hold of. It's hard for the heart to believe it. And so Peter says, Paul taught the very same thing, even so as our beloved brother Paul. Peter and Paul agreed fully, even as also... Oh, that's powerful English construction there in the middle of this 15th verse. Even as also in the doctrine about last things. Now look what... Okay, I hope you can understand that. So Paul's got some help with the Jewish believers in Turkey. Coming from Peter, the apostle of the Jews. You know, a leading pillar in the church at Jerusalem. Well known and established of having been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the terminology that he uses for Paul, even as our beloved brother Paul. Isn't that precious? Our beloved brother Paul. Do you know what Paul did to this brother in Galatians chapter 2 and then wrote it down in an epistle for all the churches to know about it? He rebuked him to his face because Peter was guilty of hypocrisy. But Paul wrote it down and everyone knew about Peter's hypocrisy. And look at how Peter responds. Is this taught in the Bible? Is there anything more beautiful than a wise reprover upon an obedient ear? Rebuke a wise man and he'll be yet wiser. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Isn't it wonderful to see it fulfilled? You know, these men, before they were given the Holy Ghost, do you know what they were all arguing about? Not Paul, of course, but the apostles. They were all arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember those days that we read about in the Bible? But look at this. I I just want to sit here and feast on that for a moment. Is this true of our church? I guess is why I wanted to stay here. Is this true of our church? Are we all capable of being rebuked or reproved, or corrected, or warned, and love the one doing it. If you don't, you're a scorner. A scorner is about the worst category of anyone in the Bible other than a son of Belial. Let's not be scorners. Let's not hate the one that reproves us or rebukes us. A fool hates the reproof and the rebuke. A scorner hates the one doing the reproving and the rebuking. But look at Peter. Just thought I'd cause you to think about those things. Would to God that all believers could respond half as well to their reprovers as Peter did to Paul. Let's also notice this. Even as the mighty apostle Paul also, it doesn't say even the mighty apostle Paul. 
What about this combination of words? Even as the most holy father, Paul. Anybody know where I'm going? How about even as the most holy and reverend father, Paul. Has there ever been a most holy and reverend father, Paul, in this world? Be careful. There's a whole church of 1.2 billion people that think the appropriate terminology for the successor of Peter is to be called Most Holy and Reverend Father Pope Paul, Pope John, Pope John Paul, Pope Paul John. I don't know if that one has occurred yet. Pope Benedict, Pope Frank that we have right now and coming to America. Oh yes. Next month or September he's coming to America And Rick Warren is going to participate with him and preach in Philadelphia with Pope Frank. Part of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's why I wrote you recently and said, I wish the SBC would throw Rick Warren under the bus. And then put it in gear. That's terrible. What in the world are Baptists associating at the highest levels with the Pope? Oh, Lord. This is important, what I'm giving you right now about the terminology that we use. Look at Matthew 23, always holding your hand at 2 Peter 3. Matthew chapter 23. Peter and Paul, right hand of fellowship. They had their duties divided up. They believed in the division of labor. Paul would take care of the Gentiles. Peter would take care of the Jews. But once in a while, they'd do a few things cross-border in order to help each other and to confirm that the gospel was by apostolic unity and agreement. Matthew chapter 23, this is speaking of Pharisees. You can tell by verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Verse 5, all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. And love, who wears the most obnoxious long pajamas in airports and everywhere else but Roman Catholic priests and nuns wearing that junk to try to look religious in public you know what you're supposed to do in in public not look religious they enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men rabbi rabbi Verse 8, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of our religion. He is our Father through God our Father. But be, but be not ye called rabbi, verse 8, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, For one is your Father which is in heaven, neither be ye called masters. For one is your Master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Amen and amen. We want verse 8. All ye are brethren. So when Peter is describing Paul, he doesn't call him the great apostle Paul. He doesn't use any flattering titles. He just says, our beloved brother Paul. And so we should remember that because Jesus condemned flattering titles and so did Elihu in Job 32 where Elihu said that if I were to use flattering titles for you pompous old men, my maker would soon take me away. 
And if there were ever four men that sort of deserved a flattering title, it was Joby, Lifeaz, Bildad, and Zophar, four of the wisest men on earth. Okay. We just want to exhaust the Word of God and what it teaches us. An account. Let's be accountants in the faith, brethren. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. We know why He's delaying His coming for very good reason. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him. Wisdom is a gift given from initial grace of God in our lives all the way to providential mercies that follow. It is the gift of God. The beginning of wisdom, what does the book of Proverbs teach? What? Blank, blank, blank. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But Romans 3.18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. For you to even get started with what the Bible calls wisdom, you have to fear God, and no man fears God, so it has to be a work of grace in our lives, which is the gift of God to cause us to even get started on the path of wisdom. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. Paul said when he was on trial before Agrippa, King Agrippa, I verily thought within myself to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. But then the Lord changes our hearts. And we want to do everything we can on the part of Jesus of Nazareth. And what a change it does make. And so it says, according to the wisdom given unto him. Peter knew about the wisdom given to Paul because Paul was given exceptional wisdom in dealing with the Gentile issue in the church that they did not have to submit to the law of Moses. Even practical wisdom is the gift of God. James 1.5 If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth. So it's a gift. Even practical wisdom, way into our walk as a Christian, comes from God as a gift by our request for it, by admitting our need for Him to give us wisdom, according to the wisdom given unto Him. Now the Apostle Paul had exceptional wisdom. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn you to Ephesians chapter 3, but Paul said in writing that things were revealed to him that had not been revealed before to the sons of men. He understood the Jew-Gentile thing better than anyone else. He understood that both bodies had been brought into one through Jesus Christ, the middle wall of partition taken away, they were all saved the same way, and they no longer had any obligation to the law of Moses for any legal work or even vital work before God. They were saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, regenerated by the Spirit, and justified by Christ on the cross and after His resurrection. Paul had been personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells the Galatians, I certify, I certify you, brethren. Do all of you know that we believe a certified gospel? I like the word. You know, there's a great difference between something that is or is not certified in the world. Paul jumped on that, and in Galatians chapter 1, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel preached of me was not preached after man, but I received it by the direct revelation of Jesus Christ. And after 15 years or so, when I thought I might as well go pay a visit to the apostles, I only saw a couple of them, and I was only there a few days because the Lord taught me. 
And so Peter's recognizing that, and we want to recognize that the apostle given to us, the apostle Paul, had been given a great gift of wisdom. He had seen the Lord Jesus Christ and had received communion instruction and other instructions directly from his mouth. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, he said, For I have received of the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered unto you. And then he quotes what the Lord said at the Last Supper. But Paul wasn't at the Last Supper. But he got it directly from the Lord. Elihu, a young man with four wise patriarchs sitting around him, had inspired wisdom from God when he said, There is a spirit in man, and the Almighty giveth him understanding. And you know what? Where we have that, it's in the books written by those men. Who wrote the book of Job? Who wrote the book of Job? Elihu did. Who wrote the book of Second Peter? Peter did. Who wrote the apostles that Peter's referring to? Paul did. They wrote it down. So we have inspired wisdom, inspired knowledge in our hands, on our laps, before our eyes, by God's great mercy to us. Amen. Unbelievable! The world doesn't have a clue about what's to happen to the universe. They're sending out their little flies. You know, they want to check out Pluto. Well, Pluto's so close to Earth and such a small, minute part of the universe, but our God is going to burn the whole thing up. He's going to fold it up like a garment. Take whatever metaphor you want. It's all going to be changed. Why, why would we want to explore Pluto? What we want to explore is the new Pluto. Who cares about the old one? It's decrepit. It's dying. It's suffering entropy. It's moving from order to disorder. But there's a new Pluto coming. I was waiting for one of you to say, I want it. You want to live there. You may not need air like we need air right now. You may not need water like we need water. The Bible says there's no more sea. You say you're crazy. Amen. I want the Word of God to keep making me crazy. Amen. Just like the Apostle Paul was crazy in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and on trial before Agrippa, let's be crazy for the Lord's sake. Let's believe these things. And you know, I shared with you this morning that there was a great gift of wisdom given to Ezra the scribe, a ready scribe in the law of God, who had the wisdom of God under his control in his hand that he took to Jerusalem to teach the people there that already knew the truth and those that didn't know the truth. And Ahasuerus was blessing him and telling him to go do it and to do a good job. And if, if, any, if anybody doesn't like your preaching, we'll execute them. We'll confiscate their goods or we'll banish them to Egypt. Did you read, the, did you read it with me this morning? I mean, that's just powerful legislation from the executive office of that empire. And so we have Paul, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. You people there in western Turkey have Paul's epistles because he wrote you about the things I've told you about by the gift of wisdom that God gave him. And it's exactly what I taught you, even as Paul also has written unto you the very things that I told you about Christ's coming. Hath written unto you. Somebody would say, okay, we've got Jews at hand. Did Paul write the Jews? But go ahead, I'm going to lead you along here for a moment. It's okay, yes, Paul wrote the Jews. What's the name of the book? 
Hebrews. But those Jews were the ones in Judea around Jerusalem. There's a number of reasons that you can prove that, and we did when I was preaching through the book of Hebrews. So Paul did write the Jews in a book called The Hebrews because another name for Jews is Hebrews. But this is a different group of people. These people are far away from Jerusalem. They're all the way across the Mediterranean, and they are not in southern Turkey. They are in central or northern Turkey on the western end of that long nation, as it is known today. Did Paul write those churches? Remember the Galatians? Where was is Ephesus one of the seven churches of Asia? What was next to it? Colossia, Colossi for the Colossians. He wrote the Laodiceans. Was that also one of the churches of Asia? Listed in Revelation chapters 1 through 3? Yes, but that wasn't inspired and preserved by God, so it goes by the wayside. In Colossians 4.16, Paul told the Colossians, share this epistle with the Laodiceans and get the epistle I wrote to the Laodiceans and read it in your church. But that one didn't make the cut. And it's wonderful to do any study at all, and there's not much you can study. It's wonderful to see how epistles made the cut and epistles didn't make the cut. The apostles would press epistles on the churches as coming directly from God that were to be considered as Scripture. And notice how much is said in these two verses that Peter already knew about the epistles of Paul. More on that in a moment. Hath written unto you. Paul did indeed write Scripture to churches in the regions that Peter has identified. He wrote Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians to Peter's listed regions. The rest of Paul's epistles were to Rome, churches in Greece, Achaia, and Macedonia, and to ministers with the three pastoral epistles. Did Paul write similar doctrine to what Peter wrote in these last two chapters? The last two chapters of Second Peter, chapter 2, is about false teachers. Chapter 3 is about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the overthrow of the universe. Did Paul ever mention those things? Just in those three epistles, yes. And I don't have time to belabor your mind with all those details, but you can look them up later. Did he talk about false teachers? How about in every chapter of the book of Galatians? Those that had perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about prophecies of the destruction of the world? Who have saved us from the wrath to come. And other expressions like that to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, and to the Colossians. Jesus Christ coming again for His own. Galatians and Ephesians. An eternal inheritance for the elect. Ephesians and Colossians. A great change coming upon nature. Colossians. God's merciful long-suffering to save all of His elect. Ephesians chapter 1. It's all there in just those three epistles that were written by Paul to... They were written by Paul to these people that Peter was now addressing in this epistle. And so he's, he's saying, brethren, beloved brethren, the things that I just told you are the same things that Paul wrote to you. We're in total agreement. You have epistles from him. You have epistles from me. It's in writing. These things are going to happen. We both agree exactly on these things. You know, his wording is a little different in verses 10 through 14, isn't it? It's a little different, but it's no, it's nothing else but a new inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, which is consistent with what Paul taught in other places. 
hath written unto you. So we go, we come to verse 16, as also in all his epistles. As also in all his epistles. Not only the three epistles written to you folks, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, but also in all his epistles. The great whore of Rome, if you go online and say, where'd we get our Bible? Now there's a thousand Catholic websites that say, we gave it to you. We're the mother church. If it weren't for us, you wouldn't even have a Bible. You say, when did you give it to us? Some of them will say, when Athanasius listed the 27 books of the New Testament in the order that we now have them in 367 A.D. That is by far the earliest date. 367 A.D. Other ones will say, under Pope Damasus in 382 A.D. Others will say the Council of Hippo in North Africa in 393 A.D. Or the Council of Carthage sends the refined canon to Pope Innocent to ratify it in 397. They're still ratifying the 27 books of the New Testament at 400 A.D. when Peter's writing in 65 A.D. and says we've already got the epistles of Paul. They don't have a clue. They're a, they're a day late and a dollar short. Am I wrong on both counts? They're 400 years late. They're 300 years late. And they're all the wealth of heaven is measured by the Word of God short monetarily. It's ridiculous, the Roman Catholics. I want you to embrace the Bible and understand that these, these apostles knew about each other's epistles. We should not be surprised the New Testament canon came together quickly. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13 with me. And let's chase ourselves a little rabbit. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I've got myself a 13-gauge shotgun. 1 Corinthians 13. The apostles knew about the epistles. And the epistles came together very fast. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. This is talking about the gifts, the apostolic gifts, the supernatural miraculous gifts, the revelatory gifts. You know, chapter 12 is all about the gifts. Chapter 14 is all about the gifts. Here we are in 13 where Paul puts in a buffer that charity is more important than any spiritual gift. And don't ever forget that. Loving the brethren is more important than any spiritual gift, including being an apostle. Verse 8, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. In verse 8, it is not saying that prophecies will fail, meaning God's prophets will make a prophecy and the prophecy will not come to pass. It is saying that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church is going to stop. When it says tongues will cease, Nobody would speak in tongues after some point in time. When it says that knowledge shall vanish away, it doesn't mean that we're all going to be stupid in heaven. It means that the gift of knowledge was going to disappear where men would get a word of knowledge while there was something under discussion in a New Testament church before the New Testament had been written, a man could get a word of knowledge. It's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or a word of wisdom in which he could answer a question from the Lord. It's like the Old Testament Urim and Thummim. They could get direct revelation from God by these spiritual gifts. 
These gifts were going to go away. It doesn't mean that knowledge is going to go away and we're not going to know anything. It means that the apostolic gift of knowledge would disappear when it was replaced by something better. So let's read the next verse. For we know in part, that is our knowledge of God's will for us in the New Testament is only partial, and we prophesy in part, we don't have it all together in one place, so that in 1 Corinthians 14, when it gives the rules for prophets, let's say there were 10 prophets in the church at Corinth, only one could speak at a time, and if another prophet had something revealed to him, the first one was to sit down so that the second one could add to what the first one said because no prophet had it all. They only had little tiny partial bits of prophecy. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. These partial gifts of a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge of prophecy, of speaking in tongues, these things are going to be done away with when something that is perfect is come. And what are we dealing with here? Knowledge and revelation from God. When perfect knowledge and perfect revelation, perfect prophecy comes from God. Do we have a perfect word of prophecy? Are you holding it in your lap? We have also a more sure word of Prophecy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is able to make the man of God perfect. James chapter 1, it is called the perfect law of liberty. Oh, brethren, as soon as the New Testament came, they didn't need any of those partial gifts. They could just sit there and read Paul's epistles, read Peter's epistles, James' epistles, Jude, and so forth. Isn't that wonderful? And look what we have, all 27, no one standing up and saying, Brother, I think that I've got a a little bit of additional insight on that that you don't have. We've all got the same insight right in your hands and your laps. This is how our fathers have understood this passage, and this is how we understand it. There isn't anything in this passage about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in this passage is about seeing clearly and not through a glass darkly where everything's obscure by only having partial information coming from the prophets of God and the speakers in the church. Where only one person can get up and babble in tongues for a while, then there has to be an interpreter stand up and explain what was just babbled in tongues. But that's not true babbling. It was in another language, but it certainly sounded like babbling because the apostle said it sounded like you're a bunch of barbarians. So don't take me for being disrespectful to the Word of God, but I will disrespect the infantile age of the church because this passage goes on to say that it was the childish stage of the church, but when we become a man, what do we do? We put away childish things. What are the childish things? Speaking in tongues, having the gift of prophecy, and having a word of knowledge. And the word of knowledge is not this. I want to address all of you that are watching by television that one of you has kidney stones. And if you'll sow a seed, you'll drop it in the toilet in just a few minutes. That ain't no word of wisdom. That's a word of filthy lucre. Making merchandise of God's people just as Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 said they would. And verse 4, I hope you appreciate this passage in front of us. That as that which is perfect, as the finished, completed canon of the New Testament came into being and was in the churches, there was no more use of these partial gifts, and these partial gifts would float away. When I was a child, I thought as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. 
When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Do you understand what he's telling the Corinthians? Perfect knowledge is coming, and your imperfect way of worshiping is about to disappear. For now we see through a glass darkly, right now, while these gifts were here. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, verse 9. But when that which is perfect has come, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. It's not talking about seeing Jesus Christ face to face because the coming of the Lord isn't in 12, it isn't in 14, and it certainly isn't in 13. It's making a contrast between looking through a glass darkly and looking at somebody without anything in between. Because we'll have the finished Word of God. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. We'll have everything God wants us to know perfectly laid out to us in writing. Now the reason I went to that pain to explain that passage to you, that by latter epistles, by Paul's latter epistles, he could not heal because the gifts were already disappearing even from the mightiest apostle. We all know that. In 1 Timothy 5.23, he told Timothy to drink a little wine for his oft-stomach infirmities. Why didn't he send him a handkerchief or a napkin? Early in Paul's ministry, Paul could mail by FedEx a handkerchief or a napkin to Timothy, and bang, when he opened the envelope, he was healed. Do you know that in the Bible? But at the end of his life, Paul couldn't heal. It says in 2 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 16, I believe, that I've left Trophimus sick at Miletus. He couldn't heal. Because those gifts were disappearing. Why? Because 2 Timothy 4 is Paul's last epistle. The New Testament canon was coming together. Those gifts went away. It was already in writing. What further confirmation did those men need by miraculous gifts or by revelatory gifts? Thank you, Lord. And do you know there's people going around today thinking they've got the revelatory apostolic gifts back? And they can't do anything that Paul did. Oh, they'll certainly take your money for a hanky. Oh, yes. All of you out there in television land, this is Mike Murdoch, and there's nothing I love more than filthy lucre. If you will send me a seed, I will send you a napkin. If you'll put that napkin under your car seat, you're gonna, you may need a few of these. If you put one under your pillow, if you carry one in your pocket, you're going to be rich, famous, and all problems will disappear. You'll have physical health like you've never imagined it before. You say you're making fun of false teachers. Thank, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Maybe I'm a little tiny bit like Elijah. I certainly am subject to like passions as he was. So let's make fun of false religion. By latter epistles, Paul couldn't heal because something perfect was coming into place and Peter recognized Paul's epistles. Look at 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Oh, that was a long rabbit trail. My 13 gauge... Whichever one of you ever gets a 10-gauge and has a 4-inch magnum, I would like to try it sometime. I've just never popped for something quite so big. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at this verse. Verse 18. For the Scripture saith, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. What book of the Bible is it from? Do you have cross-references in your Bible? It's from Deuteronomy. It's the law of Moses. Is there anything more solidly Scripture 
than the law of Moses? Next sentence. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. What book of the Bible? Luke! Luke! Look at how Paul opens this verse. For the Scripture saith, and he puts Luke, a Gentile, the beloved physician, not an apostle, right alongside Moses, while Paul was alive. Praise the Lord. We have the Word of God, and it was given to us far earlier than 367 A.D. or 382 or 397 or 400 or any of those wild dates of the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't give us the Word of God. They were the ones that tried to burn it and destroy it for 1,500 years, and they hated the Word of God. That's why they did their masses in Latin and wouldn't let the people hear the Word of God in their own tongue. What are they talking about giving us the Bible? They don't know anything about the Bible. Matthew chapter 23 that we've already read said, Call no man Father on earth. And what do they call all their priests? They don't care about the Bible in print or its doctrine. But we know about the Bible because Peter, their first pope supposedly, who wasn't a pope, he never went to Rome, and he wouldn't have gone to Rome because Paul was in charge in Rome. That's where Paul went. Peter was in Babylon. He said in verse 16 that Paul also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures unto their own destruction. So Peter describes Paul's epistles as Scripture already. They're part of the Bible when Peter wrote this in 65, 67 or so A.D. Thank you, Lord. As also in all his epistles, not just the ones written to you in verse 15, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, but in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. In the rest of Paul's epistles, does he talk about the coming of Christ? Oh, yes. Does he talk about the day of judgment and the day of wrath? Oh, yes, he does. Speaking in them of these things that Peter had written them, in which in which those things of prophecy are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. Some things hard to be understood. Do you know what most commentators, and I just find this interesting, because we don't, but they do. Do you know what most commentators think is the hardest thing Paul ever wrote about Bible prophecy? Romans 8, 17 through 23. The creature... The creature, the creature, the whole creation. Many of them think it's referring to Gentiles. Some of them think it's referring to Jews. Some of them, they just don't know what to do with it. And they say that the two words, the creature, are the hardest words in the New Testament. Well, whole creation ain't that hard, is it? Do we know that it's groaning and travailing in pain together until now? Do we know that God's going to change it absolutely altogether? The whole heavens and the earth? Do we know what can't be included? Good angels? Bad angels? Wicked men? Because none of them have any hope. But is there something that's going to be changed? And is going to be delivered into the freedom and liberty of the sons of God? The natural creation is. Inanimate matter and irrational creatures. Which we have all around us every day and we see it dying every day. Every single day. It's a testimony to us that sin weighs on the universe. In them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Was there any confusion created by Second Thessalonians chapter 2? And the coming of Christ? 
in chapter 1 and the first epistle? Did the Thessalonians think that Jesus was about imminently to come and so it was greatly turning their world upside down and troubling them? Some things hard to be understood. The Thessalonians had not laid hold of the timing of the Lord's coming, so 2 Thessalonians 2 came along to explain it. But when you read 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8, and it refers to that which letteth shall let. Does that shed light on it for you? That which letteth shall let until it be taken out of the way? Is that rather obscure? Some things hard to be understood? Oh, Peter, we thank you. Sometimes when we read Paul's epistles, we just want to shout amen to 2 Peter 3.16. But thank you, Lord. He's shown us what Romans 8 is about. He has shown us what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is about. Then there were those that didn't believe that there could be a resurrection of dead bodies. So they were asking scoffing questions in 1 Corinthians 15. What kind of body are they going to have? If you believe in that resurrection of a dead body, tell me about the body. Some things hard to be understood of exactly what Paul meant when he said, there's one glory of the stars, there's another glory of the moon, and it's going to be sown in dishonor, it's going to be raised in glory. There's all these verses, but do we really understand them deeply? We just know that it's going to be a whole lot better. And so Peter says, I know, brethren, that sometimes when Paul writes things, they're hard to be understood, and they that are unlearned and unstable rest. But do you know what? Brethren, Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we are absolutely nothing in your sight and less than nothing. We are little children. We do not know how to go out or to come in, but we thank you by your grace toward us and by the Holy Spirit and by beautiful feet that have preceded me and by the things that you have shown us together. We understand Romans chapter 8, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and 1 Corinthians 15, and we don't have a doubt about any one of the three. And it's all consistent with each other. It's consistent with Daniel chapter 7, the chapters of Revelation. The Lord's been gracious to us. We are not unlearned. Now we have to ask, are we unstable? We've got to hold fast. We cannot move. What the Lord has shown us, we are not going to change. We are not going to modify. We're not going to alter without a tsunami of new evidence from the Word of God that explains everything we held in the past, overthrows it and replaces it with something better to the greater satisfaction of the whole Word of God. We're not changing. Because I'm taught to hold fast the faithful Word. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. The Lord has been very kind to us. Brethren, we cannot be unstable or unlearned in this church. The reason that we get together, the reason that so many emails come from your pastor, from questions at letgodbetrue.com, from scrosby1 at charter.net, the reason, because we cannot suffer a loss of knowledge. We have got to hold fast the things that we've been taught. We need to be reminded of them. Peter said in the first chapter of this epistle, he said, as long as I am alive, I am going to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And he took four verses to repeatedly say the same thing, that I will continually stress you remembering everything of the apostolic faith, even though you're established in the present truth. And brethren, you're established in the present truth, but we can't ever let it slide. Men will creep in among us, and they have crept in among us in the past. Paul promised it in Acts chapter 20. We've seen it fulfilled. We saw it fulfilled just a few weeks ago when someone departed from the faith on basic fundamentals of what we believe in this church. We will not tolerate it. We cannot tolerate it because we've got to hold fast 
to the faithful Word that's been taught to us, we've got to hold fast to the Scriptures that the apostles have given us. You know, the, the reason that we have a church... The reason that there's a ministry is to protect you from being like children being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians 4 and verse 14. That's why we have a church. That's one of the reasons we have that church. So that we hold fast what the apostles taught. We want to teach our children. We want to teach our children's children that they hold fast to apostolic doctrine. Lord, do not let us slide. The Apostle Paul knew that the Corinthian church was susceptible and vulnerable to another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. We don't want to be like that. I'm supposed to give heed to myself and to the doctrine and to continue in taking care of both things and thereby save those that hear me. 1 Timothy 4.16 Every minister is going to be held accountable on both counts as to how many of those that heard him did he save. Whole churches are being lost today. Whole denominations are being lost by men no longer taking heed to themselves or to the doctrine. They're floating around believing all sorts of things. We are not changing. But Lord, we'll change in a second if you show us a tsunami of evidence from your word that something we're doing is wrong and something that you've revealed we haven't understood and you're showing it to us better. We will change. We have changed and will change yet again based on your mercy toward us. As they do also the other scriptures. There are so many scripture corruptors out there. It is not something new, brethren. It's not the last 50 years. It's not the last 100 years. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul said, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as in the sight of God speak we the truth. 2 Corinthians 2.17 It's always been around. Scripture corruptors. Who's the greatest liar? The devil himself. He's been lying from the beginning, corrupting God's Word. And when it comes to a chapter like this, do you know what this chapter can be summarized as saying? The man, the man, the man Christ Jesus is coming back to throw you, Satan, into the lake of fire and give His brothers made of flesh and blood that you tried to destroy a new heaven and a new earth where they will be in the presence of God instead of you. What do you think He wants to do with precious truth like Second Peter 3 and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Corrupt it to their own destruction. Unstable people unlearned people misuse the Word of God and destroy themselves. Now this destruction is not going to the lake of fire. This destruction is losing the truth of the Gospel and having their consciences and their faith overthrown and destroyed from the hopeful, faith-filled, joy-filled, peaceful existence that God expects for His people. Does the Bible tell us that wandering from truth into error is to die in James 5, 19 and 20, save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins? Did Paul say that he was cast down but not? If the false gospel comes along, is it able to cast men down and destroy them beyond what Paul allowed? Does the Bible say in Romans 14, verses 15 and 20, that if we abuse Christian liberty toward another brother, we can 
destroy that brother. We destroy his confidence and clear conscience before God. These are, these are expressions of the word destruction in the Bible where it's being referred to saints that are God's elect. They can't be destroyed and go to hell, but their faith can be destroyed like the Corinthians was when men came along and preached that there was no resurrection of the dead, which leaves us of all men most miserable. And one of those early Testament, two of them, were Hymenaeus and Philetus, who taught that the resurrection was past already, and it tells us they overthrew the faith of some. Because the faith of God's elect includes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, the ruin of this universe, the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of His saints to be united body, soul, and spirit in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you shake that, you shake the foundation of faith of believers and you can destroy them. And so we have verses 15 and 16, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. When we come back, we'll take up the final two verses of Paul exhorting us not to be like them in any way, but to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thus far, you have in your hand something incredibly special. We have in writing from apostles in total agreement that there is no private interpretation to be had in 31,101 verses the revelation of God of what Jesus Christ is coming to do in this world. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.